Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today, Old Testament lesson is taken from Job chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. After these, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night, it was said, a boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May his morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. May it did not shut the door of the womb on me to hide troubles from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Let us pray. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ by promise and shadow in these pages. Help us to understand these words for thy name's sake. Amen. Our New Testament lesson is from Matthew 27, verses 45 through 50. Beloved, these are the words of our Sovereign Lord. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Can we pray? Our Father, we've heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Job is a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil. The Lord himself says of Job, there is no one else like him. And so when this poor man loses everything, Nevertheless, he praises God. His herds have been plundered or destroyed. His servants have all been captured or killed. His seven sons and three daughters, the delight of his life, have been tragically killed in a windstorm. And Job's body is now covered with open and painful sores. The greatest man of the East is now a pitiful wretch banished to the town Dunghill. And still, Job refuses to curse God or blame God for what has happened. And now completely bewildered and utterly heartbroken, Job begins to wrestle with that haunting question that we all ask at one time or another, why? Well, as we continue our series on the book of Job, we now move from the prologue, chapters 1 and 2, into the heart of the book, which is a series of speeches which run from chapter 3 all the way through to chapter 31. 
And in a rapid-fire dialogue that almost takes the form of a debate, we hear first from Job here in chapter 3, and then from his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, along with responses to each of these friends' sermons from Job himself. In chapters 32 through 37, we'll hear the speech of Elihu, who is someone who witnesses this dialogue between Job and his friends and who feels that at the end he's got to put his two cents into the debate as well. But all of these speeches come to a crashing end when God answers Job's question why, speaking to Job from the midst of a whirlwind, as recounted in chapters 38 through 41. For the next few weeks, then, we will work our way through these speeches, and you may well recognize in the speeches from Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar bad counsel in times of past trial from your own well-intended friends and family. But before we turn to the cycles, these three cycles of speeches from Job's friends, we begin this morning with Job's lament in Job chapter 3. And you'll want to take out your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 3 since we'll be covering that chapter in its entirety. Now in our previous two sermons on Job, we have met the man, we have learned of his great piety. We have witnessed the heavenly court in session when the veil which separates the seen from the unseen has been lifted. We know that critical fact that Job does not, that the devil has taken up God's challenge to consider his righteous servant Job. And by taking up God's challenge to consider Job, Satan is not only attacking that man who is the apple of God's eye, but Satan is also attacking the foundation of the gospel. According to Satan, Job serves God out of pure self-interest. Job is blameless and upright only because God bribes him with wealth and with the pleasures of family. Take all these things away, Satan reasons, and Job will curse God to his face. Not only that, but even God's plan to redeem sinners will be exposed for what it is, as Satan reasons this out, nothing but divine bribery. And so with a challenge issued by God and accepted by Satan, Job now must undergo a trial by ordeal so as to vindicate God's altogether righteous, albeit mysterious, ways in dealing with his creatures. And when a series of terrible disasters befalls Job, leaving him with nothing, instead of cursing God as Satan had predicted, Job praises God. And we read in Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, that upon learning of that disaster, that series of horrible events that has befallen him, Job fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this we read, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now overwhelmed by his great personal loss and by his heartbreak, Job's faith is now sorely tested. Now had Job been an atheist, there would have been a, surely a sense of loss and heartache. But as a believer, it's much different. The God who created all things, who has promised to redeem Job, who has blessed him with so much, has now, without any apparent reason, taken everything away. Had Job not believed in God, the calamity would have only affirmed the atheist's premise 
that the world is indeed a very cruel place. But Job knew the living God. Job trusted God's promise to save him from his sins. He made weekly burnt offerings on behalf of himself and his family. And Job knows that he has done nothing wrong to provoke God. And he knows that God will not punish him unjustly. And yet, Job has lost everything. The apparent contradiction is inescapable. And this is why the loss of his wealth and family thrusts Job into this intense personal conflict reflected in this series of speeches that make up the bulk of this book. And as that debate unfolds, we are forced to tackle the question, why do the righteous suffer? We read of Job's pain and anxiety as it spills out from his heart, revealing to us the depths of his own pain and suffering. Why did the God whom Job loved so much bring this to pass? Why did it happen? Why does God not vindicate Job's good name? Why? But if Job thought his ordeal would end with the loss of his wealth and children, he is sadly mistaken. In Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, we read of yet another appearance of Satan before the heavenly court. And notice that this time Satan does not even mention the first trial and how it turned out because it didn't end up the way Satan expected. Job did not curse God as Satan has predicted. No, Job praised God despite the loss of everything he owned, despite the death of his seven sons and three daughters. And so summoned a second time to come before the heavenly court, Satan now takes another line of attack. Take away Job's health, Satan tells the Lord, and Job will curse God to his face. But as we read in chapter 2, verse 10, Job didn't curse God when he was suddenly afflicted with a satanic illness that affected his skin, nor did Job accuse God of wrongdoing. Instead, Job rebukes his wife when she told him to give up his integrity, which is really a way of saying, Job, tell us what secret sin it is that you have, and then curse God and die. Now talk about adding insult to injury What is worse, Job's wife is speaking forth the devil's desire that Job would indeed curse God to his face. And so here sits the greatest man of the East, a solitary outcast, alone on the town Dunghill, in great physical agony, trying to relieve the suffering and itching of his skin by scratching himself with pieces of pottery. Job is a pitiful sight. His suffering now extends to every area of his existence. He's lost everything. He's sick. He's in horrible pain and suffering. He is an outcast. And given sinful human nature, Job knows what everybody who sees him is thinking. What did he do? What did he say? What did he do to bring this to pass? Why is God punishing? What horrible sin has Job committed that is exacting God's revenge? What did Job do to provoke God to anger? And no doubt the stares from the self-righteous hurt every bit as much as do the sores on his skin. Now with the reason why God has allowed Satan to subject Job to such an ordeal clearly revealed to us in the prologue, The story of Job now moves to a rapid-fire dialogue where the intense and personal nature of Job's inward struggle moves to the fore of the story. In Job 3, which is the subject of our sermon this morning, we see that this 
blameless and upright man who has done nothing wrong is not a man of stone nor of clay. Job's pain is real. His lament breaks our hearts. And in this chapter, Job comes as close as he ever will to cursing God. But he never does, as Satan has predicted he would do. Job's heart breaks. He cries out in pain. He curses the day of his own birth, but he refuses to curse God. Now, before we take up Job's complaint in Job 3, we need to look at the final verses in Job's, Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, where we meet Job's three friends. Now, as we saw last time, there was a reason why God did not kill Mrs. Job, Job's wife, when he took the lives of Job's seven sons and three daughters. The reason was that Satan used Mrs. Job the same way he had used Eve in Eden, to vocalize that very thing that Satan hoped would come to pass. The same thing holds true of Job's three friends, who respond to their friend's predicament with every intention of comforting Job in his suffering, but who, whether they know it or not, are actually doing the devil's bidding. It is their very presence in the city of Uz which plunges Job into even greater depths of despair than we've previously witnessed. Because it is with the arrival of these three wise men that Job now descends from a state of physical torment into a sense of spiritual torment and lament, as we see in Job 3. Now, according to Job 2.11, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Tamanite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. Now, the fact that Job's three friends had to travel from their home indicates, and as we know this from chapter 7, that several months have transpired between the time of Job's loss of everything and the speeches which begin in Job chapter 3. Some months earlier, when Job's wife told him to admit that he had sinned and then to curse God so as to get it over with, Job's response was resolute. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? But the greatest enemy of the sufferer is the passage of time. As hours turn into days and days into months, the loss of sleep, the loss of emotional well-being, slowly but surely chip away at Job's physical endurance and his spiritual resolve. And so Job's three friends find him in a far different emotional state than he had been in just months earlier. In the midst of his tears, Job had praised God. Now after some months have transpired, Job has fallen into the depths of despair. So much so that he's now to the point where he's cursing the day of his own birth. Now the extent to which Job's physical and emotional state has worsened becomes clear in verse 12. When they saw Job from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. The greatest man of the East is now a pitiful wretch almost beyond recognition. And Job's three friends are totally unprepared for the sight that greeted them. Now the weeping and the throwing of dust in the air are gestures of grief on behalf of their friend, but it also indicates the horrible nature of Job's appearance. That Job is as good as dead or presumed to die can be seen from the fact that they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. 
That, by the way, is the customary period of mourning for the dead. And during this whole time, no one said a word to Job because they saw how great his suffering was. And so joining Job on the dunghill and mourning with him is a sign of the strength of the friendship between these four men. Uh, From this act of support, we have to take what follows then in the series of speeches that come later, despite the tactlessness and cruelty of their comments, that these men love Job and that they are there to do what they think is in Job's best interest. They mean well, but they simply do not understand that the more they talk, the worse they make things for poor Job. Now, in the meantime, what's happened to Job's great faith? The man who refused to blame God and renounce his integrity is now a shell of his former self. Surely the pain and the misery of his affliction, the realization of the greatness of his loss, the lack of proper food and rest, the shame of being banished from the town, as well as the awareness that the townspeople surely think that He's brought this upon himself through some secret sin. All of that is clearly in view. But the trigger for the lament which follows is the arrival of Job's three friends. The very presence of these men starts this internal dialogue that Job has never had to face before. And while Job does not know of this satanically orchestrated trial by ordeal, Job does know he has done nothing wrong. And we can be reasonably assured that Job knew that his friends, his good friends, must be thinking very similar things to what his wife had been thinking. That there's some secret sin that Job had committed which caused God to punish him. And since Job has committed no such secret sin, there's only one explanation as to why these things have come to pass. Either God has abandoned Job, or else God has permitted these things to pass. And that raises this series of questions that pour out of Job's heart throughout this entire chapter 3. Why? Well, what follows in chapter 3 raises difficult questions about whether or not Job sins by engaging in this lament which follows and in the cursing of his own birth. Now, the one thing we can say for sure is that the more intensely Job seeks an answer to his question, the more and more he realizes that there is a wall between man's understanding and God's decree. And no amount of human wisdom nor curiosity can penetrate that wall. And by focusing so intently on the why, Job begins to lose the proper perspective he had earlier. Now, while Job never curses God and in no sense fulfills Satan's expectation that Job will do so, cursing the day of his own birth brings into question the righteousness of God's decree, which included the birth of Job. And that explains to us why it is that at the end of the story, Job must repent. And why it is that after he does so, God renews and reestablishes his relationship with Job to the point that things are even better at the end than they were before. But we also need to keep in mind that at the end of this series of speeches, God commends Job for speaking correctly about him, while at the same time rebuking Job's friends for misrepresenting the Lord's ways. Now, as one commentator reminds us, Job's friends are talking about God, and at times Job addresses their theologically flawed comments. But at many points in what follows, Job doesn't even respond to the comments of his friends. 
uh, choosing instead to describe his own inward struggles and pouring out his heart before God. Job is not trying to win an argument here. He's not trying to be right. It really doesn't matter to him. More importantly, Job is trying to restore his friendship with God. This is why Job's heartfelt but audacious comments shock his friends. They don't want to hear such honest and shocking words from Job since they're primarily concerned about getting to the root of it all. But Job not only responds to his friends, he tries his best to debate with God and force an answer to his questions. You know, Job isn't always right in this dialogue that follows, but he's painfully honest. And Job puts into words those very things that every sufferer thinks and feels, but may be afraid to say out loud. And that's why the honest and intense nature of this drama grasps us. Now, despite the the depths of his pain and the passion that flows from his heart, Job never laments the loss of his wealth nor his health. Job doesn't whine about all those things he had before but has now lost. Instead, as a blameless and upright man, Job demands an answer from God. And he repeatedly asks, why? And since Job knows nothing of the reasons behind that trial by ordeal, he's deeply troubled about the fact that God has brought all this to pass. Job has no idea of the reason why this has happened. But Job's own obedience and his own refusal to curse God points us ahead to the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. What's troubling Job is that he is afraid that God has abandoned him, especially when he's done nothing wrong. And Job is struggling to figure out why all this has happened. And anyone who has ever suffered can certainly put themselves in Job's place. We all ask why. And asking why is not necessarily a sin. At least it's not a sin to ask why if we are prepared to accept the answer that God gives us when we ask. Does Job sin in all of this? Yes, because everything not done from faith is sin. But Job is already justified through the merits of that coming Redeemer in whom he's placed his trust and for whom he's looking. And therefore, whatever sin Job commits must be seen in the context of the sins of a justified sinner, the sins of a Christian. And Job's repentance at the end of the story is surely proof that this is the case. And so even though Job cries out in bewilderment, he never does curse God and fulfill Satan's prophecy. And in this sense, Job passes this trial by ordeal with flying colors. And his unwillingness to blame God means that he understands the nature of God's promise, that God will somehow and in some way redeem Job from his sin. But Job also demands that God keep his promise to vindicate the innocent. And since all covenants involve two parties, and God has sworn on his oath that he will bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him, Job has every right under the terms of that covenant to ask and even demand that God vindicate him from those accusations that Job has committed some secret sin that has brought all of this to pass. Yes, Job knows and accepts the fact that God has the right to do what he wants with his creatures. Yet Job also knows that God will not punish the innocent. And since Job is blameless and upright, Job has the right to ask that why question about his predicament. But the answer Job gets in the end 
will only satisfy those who are willing to understand God's mysterious ways through the eyes of faith. God's answer to Job as to why this happened will never satisfy those who ask why when they're driven to ask why by impatience and sinful human curiosity. But for those who are willing to see the trials of life in light of the sufferings of Jesus Christ, there is indeed an answer to that very difficult question that Job raises throughout this lament. Now, In the first ten verses of Job's three, we learn that Satan's challenge fails. Job does not curse God. Instead, he curses the day of his own birth. And so you might be willing now to turn to Job chapter 3 as we work our way through this chapter. One thing jumps out. The doxology earlier on now gives way to lament. The memory of Job's wealth, the memory of his joy with family have now faded. They've been stolen from him by his current misery. The presence of his friends mourning his wretched condition brings forth a torrent of heartfelt but very provocative words from Job's heart. And thus we read in verse 1 that after this, the arrival of his friends in the week of his mourning, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. And the night it was said, a boy is born. Now what Job is requesting is that the Lord remove that day from history, that day he was conceived. And Job cries out in verses 4 through 7, That day, may it turn to darkness. May God not care about it. May no light shine upon it. May darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm its light. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. All of this can be paraphrased by saying, it would be better had I never been born. That's what Job's saying. The saddest part of Job's ordeal is that his present pain has totally obscured all the memories of his great wealth and the joys he had with family that he'd known before. And when life is viewed through the lens of pain and suffering, it is very easy for us to reason. You know, it would have been better had I never existed than have to go through these present sufferings. Some of us have been there. And some of us are there right now. Now, a number of commentators take what follows in verse 8 to be indicative of the depths of Job's despair because Job invokes magicians to blot out the day of his birth even as they seek to control the monsters of the deep. And we read, may those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. But you know, that really doesn't fit with Job's fear of the living God. And there's every possibility, as you can see in the NIV text note, that this really involves the word for see. The idea is that the powers that hold those destructive forces in check, that prevent the chaos brought about by Leviathan, the big sea monster, that those powers now be used to blot out the day of Job's birth. Job is asking that that night on which he was conceived be blotted out of the historical record. And so as we read in verses 9 to 10, may its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide me, to hide trouble from my eyes. Job never seeks to take his own life Suicide is not an option. 
But given his current state, Job wishes that he had never been born. Cursed be the day of his birth. Job's patience, his faith, had become despondency. And so at this point in his lament, Job's cursing the day of his birth gives way to a series of rhetorical questions. Why? Why, God? Why? And since God had not blotted out the day of his birth, why then was Job ever born? And Job's despair begins to become apparent to the reader in verse 11. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? But Job was born. Thus he reasons, would it not be better to just die and get it over with? As he states in verses 13 through 16, For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built for themselves places long lying in ruins, with rulers who had gold, who filled their homes with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? As Meredith Klein puts it, even confinement in the dark grave, not yet sanctified or illumined by the resurrection glory of Christ, even that place seemed to be a far better state of existence. Because there Job, who was an outcast, would share a common lot with kings and princes. In the grave there are no stares from the self-righteous. There are no haunting thoughts. There's no wretched existence. There's no pain. There's no itching from these sores. And so as Job puts it in verse 17, There in Sheol the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. The captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave driver's shout. The small and the great are there, and the slave is freed from his master. Better to be dead, Job reasons, than continue on with such suffering and shame. Now here Job does not speak of an afterlife as a place of reward or curse, although he certainly is looking forward to a bodily resurrection at the end of the age. Now keep in mind this is very early on in redemptive history when not much about the resurrection or the afterlife has been revealed in Scripture. The point being made here is that for Job, death will bring an end to his sufferings. But Job will not take his own life. His hope is that God will take it for him and bring an end to his travail. And we, here we could paraphrase Job to be saying, just kill me and get it over with. But that's not God's purpose for Job. And so as Job laments con continues, it becomes clear that he cannot undo the fact of his birth, nor can he bring his own life to an end. And so Job now arrives at the fundamental question in verses 20 through 23. Job cries out, Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave, why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? In other words, why does God give such good things like life to those who now wish to die? And why does God not give death to those who want it? If God gives good gifts and if death would end Job's suffering, why does he not just give Job the gift of death and so his suffering would come to an end? Now it's important to notice here there's a word play in the text that you may have noticed. Satan saw this hedge or the limits placed around Job as a sign of God's favor. 
But without the awareness of Satan's appearance before the heavenly court, Job now uses that same word to describe being trapped, being hedged in. He's hedged in by God's goodness and by his own suffering. God's prior blessing, all of the wealth, all of the family, all of the joy is now a curse. God has hedged him in and he's trapped. He has no way out. Now the final three verses of chapter 3 are probably three of the most difficult words in the Hebrew text to translate. But what is clearly revealed here are the depths of Job's anguish. And so beginning in verse 24, Job cries out, For sighing comes to me instead of food. My groans pour out like water. What I have feared has come upon me. What I have dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. Now the words translated here in the NIV as sighing and groaning are far too weak. The former word describes the roaring of lions. And the latter word is used in reference to the crashing of ocean waves. This is much more than a sigh of resignation. This is much more than someone groaning quietly on a sickbed. This is a violent, it is a defiant act. The translation should be something like bellowing. Now we also learn here that Job did not take his great wealth for granted. He regularly made burnt offerings to the Lord, not only to give thanks for all that God gave him, but also to consecrate all of his possessions unto the Lord who gave them. But the very thing that Job dreads most has come to pass. The loss of his wealth means the loss of God's favor. And thus Job is terrified by the thought that God is no longer favorable to him, even though he's done nothing wrong. And Job has no idea why this is the case. He's done nothing wrong. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. Why has his life come to this? I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, only turmoil. The greatest man of the East is completely undone, and our heart breaks for him. Well, what then do we say in response to such a description of suffering and such a lament? Well, the first thing we have to say is Job is correct not to curse God or blame God for what has happened to him. And by resisting the temptation to do so, Job passes that trial by ordeal and that frustrates the purposes of Satan. The second thing we have to take with us is that as a prophet, Job's own obedience points us ahead to the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, which is the ground of Job's own justified status before God. Job's suffering and obedience anticipates the suffering and obedience of the greater Job, our Savior. And third in all of this, Job is an example to us in our own suffering because it is perfectly okay to pour out our hearts before God as though we could hide from God what we're thinking anyway. But what Job, Job does that we cannot do is to curse the day of our own birth. God has ordained the number of our days as well as whether or not we will suffer. If we accept good things from God's hand, should we not, like Job, be willing to accept suffering and loss when God brings those things to pass? The scriptures are very clear. God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, good and evil and suffering. 
Now, the thing to keep in mind here is that we know what Job does not know. We know how the story will end. We know that God is going to restore Job's family and fortune, and that God will vindicate Job's good name after he passes through the ordeal. And even though Job does not understand the nature or the reason for his trial, we do. And therefore, we have a perspective on Job's ordeal that Job does not have. Now, like Job, we know that God not only promises to turn evil and suffering into good, but that he has the power to do the very thing that he has promised to do. But unlike Job, we have seen the promised Redeemer whom Job anticipates. We have seen that he has come, that he did indeed fulfill all righteousness through his own perfect obedience. And given our much better perspective on redemptive historical things, we know that Jesus Christ suffered for our sins upon the cross. And like the poor sufferer Job, we know too that Jesus was innocent, only perfectly innocent, unlike Job. Like Job, Jesus too cried out in anguish and asked that haunting question, why? And thus the words of Matthew 27, when our Lord is hanging on the cross, echo the words of Job. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this means that Jesus sanctifies the question why. And since Jesus asked why, so may we. What is more, the one who hears and who answers our prayers is a fellow sufferer. He's been tempted and tested in all ways as we have been, and yet was without sin. But we must understand that Jesus accepted God's answer to his question. Jesus must suffer and die to save us from our sins. The suffering and the agony of the cross must come before the glories of the empty tomb. And that is the pattern we find throughout redemptive history. So while it is permitted, and while we may ask why, we must be willing to accept the answer. Suffering comes before glory. Now that being said, we must also never forget that the victory of the resurrection did indeed come as Christ's death became a glorious victory over the curse and all of the works of the devil. And when we look at the big picture, we see that God restored Job's health. He restores to Job his wealth and his family. He restores Job's good name. He restores his relationship with Job. And the same thing holds true for the greater Job, Jesus Christ. For even as Jesus suffered in unspeakable agony and cried out, Why? So too God raised him from the dead and gave him that name that is above every other name. As God has done this for his own beloved son, so too God will turn our suffering to good. Our suffering will come to a glorious end and our suffering is never in vain. It has an ultimate purpose even if that purpose is known only to God. And therefore, in the midst of trial, in the midst of loss, in the midst of sickness, it is perfectly okay to open our hearts and cry out in anguish, as did Job. But you must know before you ask why that you may not get your answer until you cross into glory. Because suffering, loss, and death often precede 
God's ultimate and final answer. But since all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ, even as we ask why, we can be sure that not only does our own suffering have a purpose, but that somehow and in some way God will turn it to good. And how do we know this? We know this from the story of Job. But more importantly, we know this from our Lord's own death and resurrection. Suffering comes before glory. But glory will come as it did for Job and as it did for our blessed Lord Jesus. And glory will come to all of you whom even this day God has called to suffer. Amen.